0: The Mix Room with Janelek
1: Today we're welcoming Chris Craker onto the podcast, composer and director at Karma Studios in Thailand. Chris is a multi-Grammy nominated producer who produced the soundtrack for Christopher Nolan's Interstellar with Hans Zimmer, and his experience spans being an artist, record producer, record company executive, composer, conductor, studio owner, artist manager, author, mentor, and teacher. He is also the founder of the health and wellness record label Karma Sounds. So lots to talk about today. Welcome along, Chris. How are you doing today?
0: I'm very well. Thank you very much indeed.
1: Excellent. That's what we like to hear. Um, So I know you split your time between Thailand, London and L.A. So where are you today?
0: Today, I'm speaking to you looking over Blackfriars Bridge and St. Paul's Cathedral in London.
1: Oh, how fabulous. Well, what an interesting yeah. day of weather we're having today for anyone else. It certainly is,
0: yeah. But it's <laughs> it's bright and sunny right now, but it was pouring with rain, as is uh, <laughs> typical in London. But anyway, yeah, exactly. Monday night I fly back to Thailand to Karma Studios and uh, I'll be making my next trip to Los Angeles in early January.
1: Okay, so you're all over the place uh, a lot of the time, yes. I'm guessing.
0: Correct, Yeah, All of
1: the time zones. Okay, are you jet lagged right now or have you adapted? <laughs>
0: No, I've adapted. I I was judging um, a Steinway International Piano Competition in Florence in Italy um, about 10 days ago. Yeah, which was lovely. And I spent five days there and then flew on to see a couple of record industry friends in Marbella in southern Spain. And so that was a good time to chill out uh, for four days. And then now I'm here in London doing meetings.
1: Okay, well, and before we learn all about Karma Studios, as you just mentioned, so given your experience in the music industry so far, I think I'd be doing you a little bit of a disservice not to touch on your journey and some of the incredible projects that you've worked on during your career so far. So I would like to start with maybe your early interest in the world of music, production and Uh, composition so tell me about getting your start as a clarinet student when you were hired to play on was it bill connor's soundtrack for the documentary great railways of the world
0: Uh, (laughs) yes so um, i started playing the clarinet um, at the age of 11 and my parents took me to a, a classical music concert by the philharmonia orchestra and there was a guy playing the mozart clarinet concerto And I was enamored by that, and they very kindly bought me a clarinet, and I started lessons. Um, After about a couple of years of sort of not very much uh, progress, suddenly things really clicked, and I started to become obsessive. And by the time I was 16 or 17, I was practicing four, five hours a day. Wow. and decided to uh, yeah make my way to music college as opposed to going to university. So I started learning the piano as a side instrument as well because you had to have a second study instrument. And in, this is embarrassing, but in 1977, I went to the Royal Northern College of Music to study the clarinet. Um, and I was lucky because I kind of had really great tuition before I went with the principal clarinet player from the London Symphony Orchestra and, and other really top-end players. And I have I found that I was just a little bit ahead of some of the people there. And so in my sixth week at uh, the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, I, I got my first professional engagement playing um, as an extra clarinet player in the BBC uh, Philharmonic Orchestra. It was called the BBC Northern Symphony Orchestra in those days. Mm. But it's what we know now as the BBC Phil. And um, suddenly met a few people. And then I got a call the week after to play on a session at Granada TV, which was... Um, Uh, something that Bill Connor had done he's an amazing composer based up there in in the north of England and I'm still in touch with him to this day, curiously we worked on The Little Prince for Hans Zimmer uh, five or six years ago Oh,
1: wonderful! and
0: uh, so it's kind of nice that I've kept that friendship from 1977 to now and we still work together Mm. Um, yeah so um, the clarinet was all my thing and then I I came down to London, started doing sessions which uh, included orchestral staff, ballet staff opera staff, western in shows uh, and then i uh, found my feet playing a lot of the time in the london symphony orchestra and the london chamber orchestra so i was very lucky to play for you know some of the world's top conductors and composers like claudio bardo lauren mazel leonard bernstein and uh, yeah it was a pretty pretty glitzy clarinet playing time but uh Within that, I I loved the most playing on Hollywood soundtracks and the London Symphony Orchestra mm. got booked for all of the stuff with John Williams, who was a, a you know obviously a great source yeah. of inspiration. So I played on uh, Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace back in the day, and. Uh, I was always fascinated by what was going on at Abbey Road, the other side of the glass and got friendly with a few of the engineers at Abbey Road because we were in there most weeks, uh, you know, making records or recording films. And uh, there came a moment where I decided to take a bit of a sabbatical and learn about recording techniques and production. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'd been on the other side of that as a player and listened to how producers handled the orchestra. So I had a a pretty clear idea of that that relationship between producer and musician uh, but i had little knowledge of the technology side of things and so i it was early days of digital obviously so i was learning quickly about uh, digital recording techniques and obviously i was watching what the mic technicians were doing in yes. placement for our recording sessions and things and Fascinated by the whole experience, so but actually after that sort of six month sabbatical, I never went back to playing full time in the orchestra, and I set up a production company called Black Box Music mm-hmm. uh, and started making classical records initially for um, record labels like EMI, Decca, and Naxos, and ASV and other kind of independent UK-based labels. And one thing led to another and I then decided to buy an editing system the same as the one that they had at Abbey Road where I was doing my editing. So I then had a couple of editing suites that I was running because we were making a lot of classical records in those early days of digital because people wanted to transition their recordings from analogue to digital. And so we were getting hired all the time. Mm. It was a really, really vibrant, busy time of recording orchestras and soloists and chamber musicians. So um, I set up a, a mobile recording unit in London and one in Dublin. And then I also got a contract to work with all the principal players of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra for EMI. So I was hopping, you know, to Ireland and to New York pretty well every other week to make records and had a team of people editing them in the days and the night times uh, at at my editing suite, yeah. So um, that was the transition from being involved heavily in clarinet playing to, you know, almost overnight, booking the orchestra that I used to play in to do recordings <laughs> and uh and uh, to this date I probably I think I've made somewhere close to 600 classical recordings
1: wow quite a few then <laughs>
0: Mm, yeah
1: so you mentioned the john williams scores there in particular so the star wars so return of the jedi phantom menace yeah. i think fronts watched them so were you a big star wars fan at the time obviously you mentioned the 70s earlier i thought maybe you might <sighs> be the right sort of um age demogra- demographic to be you know the the target audience for these films
0: well of course yeah i went to see them and uh yeah it's amazing but i've you know, I was probably more fascinated by the process that I was involved in as a play. I loved yeah. watching the whole scores unfold and then seeing how they used that within the film. And that was that was my early sort of inspiration for getting involved in films, which has, as you know, gone on to this day, to the current, to the present time. Funnily enough, uh, my son, Richard Craker, and I, Uh, collaborated to compose and record and produce all the music for a new netflix documentary that's coming out later next year which is the making of star wars and that's a documentary um based upon all of how they made you know the locations and the weapons and the costumes and the cinematography so it was a it was a very nice uh 360 degree come round to being involved in something linked to Return of the Jedi and Phantom that, that I'd done, you know, 30 or 40 years before.
1: Well, that sounds like it's going to be a huge program for Netflix. Is that spanning all of the Star Wars films then from the originals?
0: Yes, it is. Yeah. It's, it's right from day one. Yeah. And how that all the movies were made on a shoestring. It's fascinating to be honest. Fantastic.
1: And full circle for you. Love that.
0: Yeah. Nice story.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, so you've won numerous awards, as you know. um, So produce over 550 classical jazz soundtrack and pop recordings, and are responsible for selling and streaming over a billion records, you know, not to mention shaping the careers of hundreds of artists. So I think it'd be best if I cherry picked a few projects, or you would have your own podcast series with me if I went through all of them, even though that does sound like it would be very fascinating, to be honest, so notably yeah. you have produced the soundtrack for Christopher Nolan's Interstellar with Hans Zimmer um, you know yeah. this soundtrack garnered critical acclaim was nominated for Academy Awards Best Score the Grammy Award yeah. um, it's yeah. you know a hugely loved film and score it's a very famous score very famous pieces within it so what are your memories mm. of working on this incredible film and the soundtrack and did you have any idea yeah. the film and then its soundtrack as a separate entity would go on to be as popular and well respected yeah. as they are.
0: Well, um, I have the most uh, profound and uh, uh, poignant memories of this, actually. Um, About uh, nine or ten years ago, I got diagnosed with cancer, and so I had to have a pretty serious operation. And uh, that all went very, very well, I'm pleased to say. And I'm uh, alive and kicking here, as you can tell. Um, Anyway, so I had my surgery and uh, my surgeon, who is a very brilliant guy, said, you must quiet down now, have three to six months off and take it easy. But shortly after that, I got the call from Hans to say, would you like to get involved in this new film I'm doing with Chris and uh, Chris Nolan? And and I could not resist. So... um, the days of the sessions which were at uh air Lindhurst studios which is where hans typically likes to record currently uh i i was without getting too graphic i i had i had a catheter in my person wow. and uh, had to had to sort of do these sessions not feeling at my utmost physically mm-hmm. but um to be honest it was the best medicine to be involved in a project like that and it was uh, my first time working with christopher nolan and uh, that was an incredible experience as well to see how he approached the whole business of cinematography and the use of music and Hans and he had had a long-standing relationship going back many years, you know, with inception and everything. So um, I was, you know, it was the, probably the best medicine I could have had to take me out of that little dark period. Did I know it was going to be a huge movie? Well, you get a hunch, you know, Chris Nolan has had yes, probably yes. some of the biggest, uh, it's you know box office selling movies of all time mm-hmm. probably and uh, i think this one now has taken something like 800 million through the doors and in streaming now so it's up there with the, the biggest of the you know the most successful movies of all time and uh, the soundtrack has streamed i think close to a billion streams in various iterations across various DSPs now so you know i had a hunch it was going to be a good one and uh when when they shared the storyline with me, you could tell that this was such a magnificent concept that it was very timely and uh, and uh, you know that Kip Thorne and Stephen Hawkins were involved in the background research for all the science related to it. You know, you could tell this was going to be something special, and sure enough, it was. We never got to see any of the movie during the time of the recordings at Air Linters, the screens were blank for us. We literally were recording a score, oh, and wow. then this is unique because normally you have the film rolling whilst yeah. you're tracking. Yeah. You know? Uh, and so we were uh, in the dark on that one and, uh, none of the orchestra knew with the name of the movie or anything. It was called Flora's letter at that point. It was done under kind of a pseudonym, yes. uh, which is pretty interesting. And, uh, no pictures were allowed in the studio at all at the time, so we couldn't give away that we were recording this incredible organ in one location and then a sort of a 90-piece symphony orchestra somewhere else. And you know, I recorded percussion for about three or four days solidly with two or three of the, you know, the UK's very best percussionists. It was a really, really memorable time of putting this jigsaw puzzle together and Chris Nolan would take the audio files away into a trailer that was in the car park at Air Lindhurst Studios here in London and see how it was all sitting and then make various subtle changes the next day. And so it was a a very, very fascinating sort of 10-day period of recording the orchestra and live instruments here in London. And then, of course, we spent a significant amount of time in Los Angeles at remote control at Hans's place, uh, adding samples, synthesizers, guitars, and whatever else was required to make the thing a whole entity. And then there was a very extensive period of mixing because it's two hours 40 of pretty non-stop soundtrack. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it's a big one uh, in the grand scheme of most films that are 90 to 120 minutes.
1: So, so when was it that you finally saw the score to picture?
0: Uh Right towards the very end, actually, because there were various changes being made, at, which we made at Chris's house in uh, in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, he had an edit suite there. And so we were sort of cutting things. So I saw my first glimpses of the movie there and then various screenings at Warner Brothers in Los Angeles before it you know, became public.
1: I see. And how involved yeah. is Chris Nolan in the production process of the soundtrack? Does he kind of sit by, have any guidance yeah so
0: yeah well it's a really interesting thing because not not all, all directors are different in the way that they get involved in this part of it the sound side but he sat with hans and i through in the entire sessions in london and uh he asked the most interesting and unusual questions of me and and what my exact role was as the producer of, you know, getting this, you know, the orchestra down on virtual tape. Uh, and uh, he really added to the whole process because he was asking questions that uh, a musician might not ask, but it actually steered us in certain directions. And he made us explore lots of little different uh, ways of doing things as a layperson, which we ended up actually adopting within the school. For example, he and Hans cooked up the idea of having the choir singing directly into the wall, as opposed to directly into the middle of the room to get a more unusual sound with different reflections. Mm. And we layered that then with a normal recording of the choir. So we were doing all kinds of things. And he was asking me, you know, what, what is uh, the difference between the bow strokes on the violin and how does that make the thing sound? And how can we make it sound more spooky or more sinister or more jubilant or whatever, so he, he just pushed us a little bit, which was great. And it was a, a very, very um, uh, productive way of working, to be honest.
1: Wow, what a fascinating insight. And um, have you worked with him again since? Uh,
0: no, I haven't subsequently, but I think there was something on the cards in the very near future. After that, I moved on to another score with Hans, which was the animation film, which won a nice uh, awarding can for The Little Prince, which is a animated thing that... Um, uh that we did about a year later i think yeah
1: okay and um so moving Mm -hmm. on you were the general manager and senior vice president of the International Division of Sony, BMG Masterworks, until two thousand and eight. So complete pivot there, different kind of zone. Uh so you were and then you resigned to set up Karma Studios, didn't you? And devoted your time to Correct. those endeavors. Yeah. So um yeah. I have read into it a little bit, but I'd like to hear in your own words. So why did you decide that it was time to set up a studio and why Thailand of all places?
0: Mm. Yeah, so long story, but I'll keep it succinct if I can. So, <laughs> yes, I've been on this journey of producing lots of classical and jazz recordings as an independent producer through my own little company licensing records to the majors and independent labels. And I decided to set up my own label, uh, per se, called Black Box, and eventually I sold that, and that's now owned by Universal Music. And during the course of all of that, um I had a few meetings with the guys at Sony BMG. Sony and BMG had merged by that time. And they asked me to come in and be the general manager of the UK office, which is a role I played for about nine or 10 months, I think. Uh, And then Rob Stringer, the boss of Sony, who was based in London, then moved over to New York and took a few of us with him. And uh, and so I was then based out of uh, the Sony building at 555 Madison Avenue for uh, the following three years running the international division of what is now known as sony classical and um and so on the roster we had a lot of the world's greatest classical artists which included lang lang yo yo Ma, joshua bell Murray pariah afghani kissin and all the major symphony orchestras of the world so um you know i was managing an incredible catalog and commissioning recordings for some of those artists which was a you know, a fascinating job. And I really loved every minute of it. It required me to travel a lot because my son, who I referred to earlier was, uh, he'd just got into the Brit school at that point. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't want to uproot the family and move to New York. So I used to fly to America very, very frequently and, uh, spent a lot of time abroad, but I was in Munich and Tokyo and, uh, and all the other major divisions of Sony international, and, uh, yeah, it was a very, very vibrant time, but all of that traveling and the intensity of it all got a little bit much. And I found myself, um, more as a catalog manager and a lawyer negotiating deals and working with managers rather than getting my hands dirty on the music side, which I loved doing for the previous sort of 15, 20 years. And so I felt it was time for a change. So um, I amicably resigned from Sony, but carried on producing records for them. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, actually, funnily enough, the, the first few records that I made for them were Hans Zimmer, the classics, and James Horner, the classics. So it okay. it was all around film music at that time as well for me. And uh, And so I thought I'd love my own place to have my own sort of headquarters and a studio. And... In the course of my journey, I'd been invited to make records for His Majesty the King of Thailand, who himself composed and was a saxophone player. And randomly, I was asked to make a few records for him, which ended up being 11 CDs of his pretty well his entire output. And uh, so I'd been going to Thailand off and on uh, across a 20-year period uh, every now and again to make these records, and I thought, how amazing it would be to have a beautiful studio in a beautiful location uh and i could then entice my favorite artists to come and work with me uh, at a blissful studio by the beach and so that's exactly what we did we we built a studio an hour and a half south of bangkok uh by the beach and uh, i'm based there to this day and i've been living there for the last eight years and, and basing myself out of thailand and then flying from there to wherever i need to be and the setup is really, really beautiful. It's three studios, essentially one large one and two smaller production suites. And uh, yeah, we've we've made uh, and been involved in the production of all kinds of music from classical, jazz, heavy metal, uh, reggae, punk, disco, you name it, and uh, Hollywood films soundtracks as well. During lockdown, um, I was producing. Uh, a lot of the soundtrack for Mulan for Disney. Mm-hmm. And of course we, we weren't allowed to fly into Los Angeles to do it. So using technology uh, technique uh, via a system called source connect, we linked up with the studios in Singapore and in Prague and in London and in Los Angeles. And we put, 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 put the record together from there, the soundtrack together from there. I see. So that's a system that we've adopted, uh, You know, for the last two or three years after the COVID lockdowns. And so we do quite a little bit of remote recording like that. We've been recording a a bunch of uh, Japan's top instrumentalists as well for some projects that we've been doing for our own label more recently as well. And, uh, you know, it's great to be able to do that, just like we're doing a Zoom sort of uh, podcast thing. You know, you can actually make, you know, full bitrate audio, you know, top end recordings as well remotely now. So uh, it gives us a lot of flexibility to be involved in a lot of different projects. And so I chose Thailand because I love going there. I love the climate and the, the cost of living is much cheaper than elsewhere. And so we have a great lifestyle and a great facility
1: in which to record. I mean, I can see I I love Thailand. I could, I don't need to ask why anyone would want to move there. It's absolutely wonderful. (laughs) Everything about it. But you know, now I've seen the pictures of the studio, uh, not to mention the tech and how high end it is, Mm. but just the resort style complex, you know, it's very tropical. I'm guessing you don't have a problem in getting artists to come there.
0: No, it's such an easy win, that one. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we, we make good use of that, really. And, and, and to be honest, you know, just it changes people's mood. Uh, we, people behave and perform differently when they're very relaxed like that than if they've had to rush in on the train, you know, to do me a session at Abbey Road. It's a very different animal, really. And uh, we enjoy the process of inviting someone over. They acclimatize for a day or two. And they enjoy the facilities. We have a full spa facility at Karma Studios in Thailand, which includes obviously the swimming pool. But we have a sauna, ice bath, uh, hot jacuzzi, massage, all of that kind of stuff are all facilities that are available to the artists when they come. And so they're generally very relaxed and feeling very good. We have a chef and so great food. And uh, it it makes the whole process of recording very, very uh, relaxed and enjoyable.
1: Mm, they're definitely in the right mindset, I can tell. But, yes. um, so is the music industry in Thailand thriving or are you working more with international artists there?
0: Uh, we work with both. Um, we work with a lot of the top Thai uh, bands and pop artists. My son's producing a lot of uh, songs for those. We have a relationship with Warner Music in Asia as well, so we do quite a lot of work for them. But we work for a lot of the independent labels and a lot of the best independent artists We hold songwriting camps there for people from all over the world. So we've had some of the world's biggest songwriters take over the building for a couple of weeks, and they all park themselves in different studios and write for specific artists or projects. Sometimes they include Thai writers within that, but it's largely international. I'd say it's an 80-20 split between international and local. Um, But uh, obviously... We 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 love inviting people from all over the world to come and sh- share the facility with us.
1: Mm, of course, and I saw so your first guests when you opened were, placebo, Jimmeriquee, and Bullet for My Valentine. So huge acts! How did you attract them first of all, or were you just yes. advertising the studio with the you know the connections you had at the time?
0: Um, no, I, I I've never really advertised the studio, so this was uh, word of mouth really. But I was. I am still personal friends with the manager of Placebo, Dave McLean, who had set up an office in Bangkok. We actually met in a a line for the plane out of Cannes from Midem one year. And uh, (laughs) he told me he was setting up an office in Bangkok just at the time that I was setting up a studio in Thailand. And so I said, bring the boys over. And uh, so Placebo came and uh, they, they recorded a bunch of tracks that ended up on the album, Nothing Like the Sun, and then the word got around," and then Jay got wind of it. he loved coming to Thailand, so Jamuiroquai were then uh, one of our next big clients, and Bullet followed shortly after but we've had a lot of British rock bands a uh, uh, grace uh, their presence in the studio, and uh, a lot of American artists but now now really we could could reel off a a, a roster of people from all over the world really it's very, very international.
1: Mm. And what are your particular favourite studio moments that you've had there? imagine there's been numerous. I don't know. It could be a favourite artist of yours been there. Uh, I don't know, a favourite or special or surreal moment, something like that.
0: Okay. Well, I can tell you the most surreal moment uh, was linked to one of my favourite people. Uh, So I got the call uh, to see if we would like to entertain the Libertines at Karma Studio uh, for a bit of a comeback album because... (laughs) Peter Doherty had been uh, famously in rehab in Thailand. We have yes. very good health and wellness facilities in Thailand and many very fine rehab centers. And he'd been in Thailand for, I think, three or four months, not not too far away from the studio. And uh, they'd learned that there was a studio and they thought it would be great for him to come and you know get some therapeutic time writing and being creative and uh so he turned up on uh christmas Eve, i think or boxing day it was around christmas time one year and uh and that turned into then conversations with the record company for with mike smith uh universal here in london and saying oh let's let's make an album so carl Barat flew out from time to time and they were writing together and peter stayed with me for about seven months during that process uh which was a pretty hairy time, you know, because he was, uh, you know, getting better yeah. and uh, trying trying to to stay sane. And uh, and we, we, I think, uh, safe to say that we we played a significant role in helping him through that time. And uh, it was um, very very rewarding to see him come from a sort of slightly fragile young man uh, to getting a nice album under his belt, which was produced by Jake Gosling, who'd previously just done X with yeah. Ed Sheeran. Mm-hmm. And, uh, unlikely pairing, to be honest, but, uh, Jake came out and did a really amazing job. And, uh, that record went straight in at number two and, uh, and, you know, reinvigorated the entire career of the Libertines. And they're still going to this day now. But we had some pretty hairy moments with Pete, who was, uh, so much fun and so entertaining when he was feeling vibrant and so, Distraught and uh, sad, you know, when he was not. So we saw every extreme of emotion with Pete. And uh, one time he came into my studio in the middle of the night, funny enough, when my son was on a Zoom call with one of my engineers uh, or a video call of some kind, and uh, uh, he'd got a uh, an alligator's head that he bought in some market somewhere, and he wanted to know how to preserve this head. I don't. I don't think he was in the best of Your shape. son was time. the expert,
1: clearly. Yeah. And,
0: and so um, we had to figure out what to do. But he boiled this alligator's head, and it disintegrated completely within oh a, matter, a matter of about thirty-five minutes. So, but that was the most surreal moment. Which, um and I'll tell a bad story about Pete as well, which uh, we we can laugh about now. But um he was so infused by. uh one of the mixes that Jake had done, he jumped on my SSL uh, 56-channel console and uh, fractured the entire centre section, which was a, an expensive moment, shall we say. Yes,
1: yes, indeed. One that he
0: put right very quickly, and he and his management were so gently about it all, and uh, everything ended up well, but it was a, a slightly... Uh, n- another surreal moment shall we say an interesting
1: yeah. time i suppose you must know um they've set up albion studios in margate which is really near me of course
0: actually. is it right yeah no um i know all about that yeah and uh very happy that they've got their own facility now and uh, i gather it's going pretty well which is great news yeah
1: yeah from what i hear people see uh, maybe not anymore i think that people used to see pete around with his dogs for a while but i think he might have moved to france now or something
0: yeah, he's living in Paris. He's married now to Katia, and uh, and so I think he's settled there. But he's in the UK, obviously, when they're working.
1: Yeah, yeah. just Carl then. Carl's hanging about.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Great.
1: So on to the all-important kit within the studio complex. So I know you've got the best of the best. Anyone can see on your website all of the stuff you've got in there. So I know when it comes to monitors, you are using a nice combination of vintage Genelik 1035 main monitors and modern the ones near fields aren't you so when did you first encounter genelec monitors chris
0: so i have a very clear recollection of the first time that i loved genelec monitors and that was at um hugh Pagem studio in west london my uh my son's band franco were recording there and uh, jim lowe was the producer and he'd been working with the Foo Fighters and various other bands, and we did some sessions at Metropolis, <clears throat> where there were ten thirty fives in the studio, and also in Hughes Room, and uh, and so it was great to 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 be you know monitoring on those things and jim used to monitor very quietly but i love the accuracy of it all and then obviously when you want to have an exhilarating moment they're they're so powerful uh that they could handle the, the loudest and with the most clarity for rock music as well so uh, that was where i was first impressed with them really probably in metropolis i think and then uh in the mix process afterwards and uh when we were setting up the studio i just you know i was Specking out what i would ideally like and uh you know i know it's a little bit old school to have huge main monitors in a pop studio like that now but um, i couldn't resist and so i sourced a pair of secondhand 1035s which uh were originally in the townhouse studio and fam- famously uh, Queen did it's a kind of magic uh you, in that studio on those monitors. So we 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 lacked that little bit of history on those. And at the same time, I had bought um an SSL 4056 E Stroke G console, um which previously had been owned by um UB40. So that was in their studio in Birmingham. And then I bought it and had it completely refurbished, had 9,000 new capacitors put in and, uh, a genius guy, studio tech guy, Dave Nally looked after that console for the entire time that we had it. And then two or three years ago, I decided to sell that, uh, because in the previous three years, only a handful of bands really had used the console to its fullest extent. And, uh, we thought it was time sort of to get come up to date and, and get a little bit more current in the way that we're operating. So now we operate completely in the box by um, Apollo interfaces from UAD, and uh, we still have the same number of inputs and outputs pretty well and uh, the same flexibility of recording, tracking, and mixing. But um, uh, we kept our very favorite bits of analog uh 19-inch rack gear as well. So we have Pultex and Distressors and 1176s and that kind of stuff and LA-2As which uh, the the, uh, plug-in equivalents on UAD are all amazing but we kept the bits where we felt that we could hear the difference between the real analogue item and uh, so we've retained a certain amount of rack gear and great mic prees, and then as you say, uh, all floating out into Genelec monitors we decided to invest in the ones as our near fields and we have the largest of those in studio one. And then both my son and uh, my business partner, Steve Jones, they've got the middle sized ones in their facilities in Bangkok. And we have a pair of the smaller ones too. So we're well-equipped with Genelec speakers and it provides a very good consistency for us when we're working in different rooms to have that one, you know, uh standard kind of sound field uh, and sound that we 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 know that we can trust
1: mm-hmm. and obviously you've got extensive experience as a producer as we know um so what are some of your favorite characteristics about gen monitors
0: um i really love the the ability the, the, the fact that when we're tracking we know that uh when we get into a mix situation, everything sort of stays very, very crystal clear. And and I love being able to monitor quietly and accurately and knowing that when we get a mix right on the ones, particularly, uh, they will translate and sound great everywhere else. And then that's the one prerequisite that you're looking for in a speaker. We flip between a few other options just to sort of check things. And we do crazy stuff like check things on uh, AirPods. and. First gen wired Apple headphones, and in the car and stuff, we still do all of that kind of stuff. We've got Auratone cubes, which uh, could occasionally be used from time to time, and, and, and the, you know, the ever-present NS10s in studios as well. But it's the 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 ones, really, the generic ones, that we rely on as our mainstay point of reference, and uh, they don't let us down. They're so great.
1: Mm, that's what you want and um mm. what uh if anything is the studio doing in the way of immersive audio Dolby atmos setup are you are you ready for that are you have you already got A Dolby atmos studio installed
0: we haven't got a, an atmos studio installed although we do uh atmos mixing using uh, uh algorithmic technology mm. and uh, and we, we we actually make a lot of spatial audio for apple music uh, a lot of our output is uh, all done in spatial and uh, very recently apple music were our clients at the studio and they fitted the studio studio one out as a 7.1 um dolby atmos room and were demonstrating all of their tech related to that and flying people in from all over asia to to have a listen Mm -hmm. And we also did a brand tie-in with Mercedes, actually, where they had three S-Class Mercedes on my lawn in the the garden because you can listen to spatial audio in the new S-Class Mercedes should you have the money to buy one of those. Uh, So that was was kind of a fun experience. But, um, yeah, no, we're heavily involved in spatial. Uh, uh, Probably a third of our or a half of our output goes out in spatial mixing. And uh, uh, I I anticipate that we'll be doing a, a full spatial rig in the first quarter of next year.
1: Okay. And what did you make of the uh the Atmos in the Mercedes?
0: Oh, it's pretty good. Actually, I think it, um uh yeah, it was good. And uh but whether one has the ability to sort of really sit back up maybe the passengers could but as a driver I I think it was a difficult because you're so focused on the road. I would love, you know, I like to listen to spatial stuff with my eyes shut and my uh latest generation of uh, Apple earbuds in. <laughs> Mm. That's how I have enjoyed using it in the in the best way really with noise cancelling and, and really being immersed in that sound. Yeah. Obviously I love uh surround in the cinema and we've we've had a long experience of doing that for the
1: last fifteen years but Okay. Yeah. I was lucky enough to hear I think I was in a Maybach at the I was invited to their showroom to listen to the Atmos sound in there. And I thought it was phenomenal. Obviously, I don't have any kind of studio at home, let alone a Dolby Atmos treated room. That's the closest I could imagine I could ever get to not able to afford one of those. But it was absolutely incredible the experience.
0: Yeah. Well, get yourself a Maybach or an S Class. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'll work on that. There's maybe a few reasons why that might not happen immediately, but that's my goal. Okay, sure, yeah. <laughs> yes. That would be nice. Um, all right, let's talk about Karma Sound. So for anyone mm. listening, this is a music company uh, that works on, you know, the health and wellness sector, and you create music that can help people relax, sleep, you know, yeah. meditate, work out, focus. So it's all to do with, you know, positive mindset, meditation, style of music. So when did you branch out into that, and is that something you're personally interested in?
0: uh the answer to the last question yes very much so and uh when did we do it we richard steve and i were in uh karma in the lockdown in the very early stages of that and i particularly was fretting about uh how we would keep running our studio business because no one could fly in to be our customer and so we had huge overheads and no customers because no one was allowed to fly to thailand and we didn't know how long that was going to go on. And uh, we were reading and aware online of the fact that many people were uh, suffering from anxiety and depression and insomnia uh, through those early stages of lockdown. And we decided just to have a go at writing some sleep music and see if we could uh, contribute something in that sector. We looked online and we saw there were Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people putting out sleep music playlists on YouTube and on Apple and Spotify, but we still decided to do it. And uh, we created a playlist called Music to Sleep to, very inventive name. And uh, very quickly, uh, I think because we applied our very best creative sensibilities to it and our production techniques that we would apply in the film world to it, we, we had a, quite a lot of people streaming and it, you know half million turned into a million which turned into a few million into three million and it, it's a still a very successful playlist to this day uh and and provides a very good sort of passive income for the company uh, and from that we decided to branch out so we still create a lot of sleep music uh, we create music for meditation music for yoga sessions we teamed up with half a dozen of the world's top yoga influencers and we provide music for them for their classes and so it ranges from that sleep meditation and yoga and now we've branched into piano chill which is the territory sort of that people would know which is a little bit like ludovicae in nowadays music yes. or max richter so we have about six or eight pianists signed to the label doing that and that's very very um productive and very, very, very successful. And we're also doing lo-fi music to study to. And, uh, some spoken word stuff. We do music for children's sleep, uh, children's lullabies for children in all over the world. So we've taken traditional folk songs and lullabies from Spain and France and China and Japan and turned those into beautiful, uh, uh, sound recordings that people put their kids to bed with. And, uh, so the label's grown over the time of, of two and a half years, and uh, we're very successful on the the DSBs, primarily with Apple Music, which is where we put out all our spatial mixes. And uh, yeah, it's a sector that we're we're loving working in, and it's you know a, a world apart from the pop stuff that my son does or the jazz funk stuff that Steve Jones does through his band Brother Strut and. Uh, and it's a nice adjunct to what I was doing in classical and film, really.
1: Mm, exactly. Combining all of it together must be a nice exactly. full circle moment, I guess. Um, yeah,
0: exactly. So, uh,
1: well, I hope you don't get into trouble with Netflix with the, about what you mentioned earlier, you know, the Netflix overlords. But what else is coming up for you and the studio in general, maybe this year or into next year?
0: Yeah. So um, so we've got a few independent uh, pop acts coming in uh this side of christmas uh 2023 and then early in the new year we're hosting some big songwriting camps with uh yeah some one camp which is uh, aimed at younger writers and really helping them develop their songwriting crafts and skills and another with uh, very well established artists and uh, we have a few sort of regular artists that come to the studio um dj snake did a a a two-and-a-half-week camp uh, last year. Sigala, the UK DJ and EDM guy, uh, has been a regular fixture every other year he comes and writes 30, 40, 50 songs, of which always he has one or two platinum-selling hit Mm -hmm. records. So we anticipate seeing him back sometime later next year as well. Um, And we're dealing with some inquiries right now for getting involved in the AI space as well so uh, we'll be working on developing some of that modeling as well so we're, we're constantly busy and very grateful for that as well.
1: Okay and um, what do you mean by the AI space there obviously that's a very big topic at the moment AI music and all of that all of the issues you might say that go along with that what What are your thoughts on AI music?
0: Um, well It's here with us right now. It's not something that's happening in the future. It's actually happening in a very big way. And so we uh, are making it our business to be fully cognizant of how it works and how it could be involved in what we do. We use AI in the artwork space. All of the Mm -hmm. cover art for our uh, 4,000 and something tracks on Karma Sounds has all been generated within mid-journey. And so we're just exploring how AI could form part of the creative process of what we do. I don't think it can replace what we do as creators and musicians and composers, but certain elements of it may be useful to us. So we're looking at that very closely. And a very close friend of mine has a company that's uh, uh, involved in the space around AI and vocals in particular and how we can add value to uh, providing tools to people to make their recording sessions more smooth and more cost effective so it can be used in all kinds of ways to enhance rather than replace and that's the bit that we're looking at
1: yes i think luckily for us humans it lacks a certain personality or spark doesn't it
0: of course yeah yeah but it it can help uh uh you know young producers and everything uh, get started on a track and then they can add their individual touches to it it, it can advance and accelerate the process i think which uh, c- can be a very exciting space for younger producers
1: absolutely um okay chris i think i could speak to you for a lot longer than this but you are a busy man uh you've probably got a flight to catch so i'm going to thank you and leave it there and perhaps we'll do another chapter of this podcast another time and i will just cherry pick a few other of your many projects out and we can talk about them <laughs>
0: Happy to come back anytime and thank you very much for this one, Alice. Thank Thank you you so
1: much. It's been so wonderful to hear your stories about, well, the Libertines, Christopher Nolan, Mm -hmm. your studio, just everything. It's been really interesting. So thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks then. Bye.
0: Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.